Last month, on a sunny Friday morning, my family and my siblings and my parents, uh, we all met at a small little cemetery in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. It was definitely this somber moment. I mean, we were, we were burying Grandma, but it was also a very nostalgic day because we were in this little area. It's an old Norwegian farming settlement is where we were at. Uh, still, still really small and really Norwegian today. Not much has changed. It just kind of looks like this, only with, with paved roads. And I knew this area very well because I attended school right in this area, just down a little winding country road. A few of the farms in this area uh, were my friend's farms. And so a, a very nostalgic day. But my grandma grew up here. She's buried right next to the grammar school that she attended when she was a, a little girl, just a half mile from the house that she grew up in. And so that day we, we carried uh, grandma into the cemetery. It's a very peaceful spot out in the country. And once we set the casket down, we kind of walked around just to get a, a feel for the, the cemetery. And, and we found my grandma's parents' headstones with the rest of her family all buried next to the parents. But there was no spot for my grandma next to them. It's the ending of a very sad story. My grandma grew up in the shadow of her siblings. Uh, her parents would vocalize, would admit that she was not their favorite. They had a favorite and it was not her. And they would tell her that. And she wasn't even near the top. She was often the odd one out, even in her own home, just left out. And so even in death, her family is in one corner of the cemetery. My grandma even paid for the headstones of, of, of her parents and even paid for the plot. Uh, but the family is buried there and left her out of it. A very tragic thing. My grandma spent a good deal of her life running from this reality, trying to make up for this pain that, that she grew up with, trying to outrun those deep feelings of inadequacy that she always wrestled with. She just never really felt good enough. And so my grandma would crave affirmation, running from that pain of her upbringing. And her story is not uncommon. We all know what it feels like at, at some level. You know what it feels like to be running from something in your past. You know that thing, maybe even came to mind right now, that thing you've been running from. And for some of us, it's a really great pain. For some of us, it's, you know, a parent took off. And as a kid, you just always blamed yourself. And so you run from that. You're trying to prove to whoever that you're good enough, that you're worth sticking around for. But you can't seem to outrun this, this emptiness of that parent leaving. I know many in our campuses have been abused as kids. And you feel broken. Like you just you can't outrun that. And for many of us, it's not something that happened to us, but it's something that we did that we can't outrun. You think of something in your past that you're running from, it's that relationship. It's that friendship that fell apart. Or it's that one night, at the party where you did that thing and, and, and you really screwed up. And anytime you think about it, you just cringe. And even though it's done and it's gone and it's in the past, it still haunts you, doesn't it? Because when your marriage is doing really well or life is clicking, you're doing well in your career, there's that small little voice in your head that reminds you, you don't deserve this. If only they... If only your spouse, if only your kids, if only your in-laws really knew the details of what you did and who you were, you can't outrun that. See, this is a remarkably difficult thought. 
It's this weight that many people, like my grandma, just take to their grave, leaving a life marked by that something they were running from, something they could never outrun. And so today we stop running. Today with Bibles in hand, we turn around and we face that which haunts us. For, for many of us, a very different journey starts right here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 41. Let's go right. Genesis 41, it's page 35 in the Bibles in the chairs. Really encourage you to grab one of those Bibles. Genesis chapter 41. I'm not going to have all the verses on the screen. I'm just keeping you honest, making sure you have the Bibles in your hand. I know a lot of people use their phones, and those work well. So whether you're clicking or turning pages, Genesis chapter 41. For the last couple of months, we've been following this guy named Joseph, studying the, the dysfunctional family that Joseph was raised in, very passive dad who led to a lot of family drama. The drama gets so bad that Joseph ends up working in Egypt as a slave. He's falsely accused of attempted rape. He's thrown into prison. After about a decade of sitting in prison, he finds himself next to Pharaoh running the, running the country. Uh, Egypt is anticipating a coming, a coming famine in the land, and Joseph is running the project of saving the entire nation from this impending doom of starvation. And this is where we left off last week, and this is where we'll pick up. Now, quick heads up, on the front of this passage, we're, we're going we're gonna to jump in. We're going to get a bit heavier on the historical context and the archaeological context, actually, because uh, that really matters, and it really does open up this whole text more. Once we get through that, we'll revisit this past thing that we all run from. We're going to need God's help, though. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much for your word. We come before you right now as a, as a family. You died to make us family, and it is a privilege to gather together as brothers and sisters, to lift high the name of Yahweh, to lift high your name, and then to dive into your word. This is such a, such a privilege and, and a fun thing for us to do, to hear from you. And so God, you will speak today. I ask that we listen, that we tune out all distractions, but that we really zero in on what you have for us today. May we not spend this time fighting off your Holy Spirit's promptings, but may we invite that. Even if it's a sore spot that you're hitting, we invite that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into Genesis chapter 41, a hot breeze sweeps through the thin window shears, slowly waking him from the deepest sleep he's had in years. His eyes have yet to open. He just wants to enjoy this because he can't remember the last time he was this comfortable. The feeling of the bed, the, the peaceful quiet. See, last week he, he woke up on a stone slab a slab that he called a bed for over 10 years, lined with scratchy sackcloths. And so mornings always greeted him with aches and raw skin. But this, he wonders if this is, is still a dream. I mean, it's a high thread count on these sheets. His pillow sinks in perfectly. The smell of bread wafts from the kitchen into his room. It brings him back to when he worked on Potiphar's estate. That, that, that morning bread smells great. But this is even better. That was when he was a slave. Today he wakes up a free man, not just a free man, a man with power. And he rolls out of bed and throws on a garment. He slides those window shears to the side and he drinks in the view of the capital, a city bustling with commerce and construction. 
It was just 13 years ago that he sat down near that marketplace, chained to a slave cart, a scared little kid, intimidated by Egypt's power. But today that power is his. The city is under his rule. It's somehow, it's like that kid is still in him. Like what his brothers did, not seeing his dad, the dysfunctional upbringing, that left residual anger and, and bitterness, something that he can't have if he's going to lead well into the future. So what Joseph does with his leadership and power We'll say more about him than anything. This is where we jump into verse 46. It says this. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Have you ever been, have you ever been uh, stretched as a leader? You remember that? Or maybe, maybe you were tasked with running a team and you've never ran with a team before. You never had people like reporting to you and like this is all new to you and you kind of struggling with that. You remember that? Or maybe you were, you, you were put in charge of like turning around a company or turning around a department. It's like this big undertaking. You have all these conversations, tough conversations and sleepless nights and you're strategizing and you're trying to get the right people on board. But then there's people who are jealous of your position and they don't really like you and you're trying to manage that. Do you remember that? That's this right here. Only the future of Egypt rests on Joseph. So really the task is, is hey, Joseph, take all the resources that we have and save the country. That's pressure. And he feels that way as he looks out the window, yet he smiles because it seems as if his whole life has been conditioned for such a time as this. An incredible story is about to unfold. Verse 47, during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until it, he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. So again, this is a massive undertaking. Joseph is building complexes and contracting with farmers for extra grain, transporting the grain. And so he's running with architecture teams, construction teams, agricultural teams, transport teams all over Egypt. This is incredibly high-level leadership. And today, archaeologists believe they found some of the buildings from this project that Joseph was building. I, I, I love this. I think this is fascinating. So in Saqqara, which is right near Cairo, in fact, right next to um, uh, Memphis, in Saqqara, uh, archaeologists have found this, this large complex, larger than any temple, big complex to handle high traffic. In fact, when they first found it, they had thought this is a temple, but now this is way too big to be a temple, but it's got that temple feel. It's a, it's a public building. Now, what is this? And so they, they dug around, and on one side of the complex, they found these huge, these huge pits. Now, at first, they thought, well, we're, we're digging up some burial chambers, but that didn't align with the Egyptian burial practices of that time. There were no bodies in this pit as, as well. And so they began to dig more into these pits, and they found an intricate system underneath, right inside, these pits were all connected to each other. At the bottom of each pit was like a chute or, or a slide, all of which flowed to this common spout at one location. So you had 12 storage pits, one access point. This is a brilliant way to store something and have easy access for mass distribution. And this is when archaeologists started to wonder, did we just find the grain storage pits from Genesis 41? Was this system and this complex all created under Joseph's leadership? The, the timing matches, the designs match. 
is this what we're reading about right here in chapter 41. I love the Bible. Isn't it fun? There's more to this complex, though. I want, to, I want us to read about it, and then we'll come back to the complex and look at it again. Uh, if you have your Bibles in front of you, verse, verse 50 to 52, Joseph knocks out a couple of kids, has a couple of kids. Uh, we're going to talk more about that next week. So we'll put a pin in that uh, next week. So Joseph designs and builds these complexes around Egypt, fills the shoots with grain, and then the famine comes, and it's bad. Look at, I'll skip to verse 56. Verse 56. And so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all these storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57. Moreover, now this is when Egypt's economy and land mass starts to grow. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So you, you see that in verse 56. Joseph opened these complexes, storehouses, and then he sold the grain. These complexes didn't just have like grain pits with shoots. In these complexes, there sits this very interesting building. It's a building with a very clear entrance and exit, uh, entrance on one end, exit on the other, uh, just one hallway connecting the two. So just two doors with one large hallway between them. Inside this building is just a bunch of little cubicles, tiny little rooms, enough for one small table and an employee. So if your family... You know, during this time, you live back then, your family gets hungry, they want something to eat, you would head to Egypt, you would find one of these complexes, you would wait in line in the complex outside the building, then you would head into the building, you'd find this little window, really, or, or a cubicle, and you'd pay the person what you could pay. Uh, they would give you a receipt, likely give you a receipt, depending on how much you paid, you would then take that receipt, and you would go to those grain storage pits, show your receipt, and they would give you as much grain as you bought. All of this designed, built, and orchestrated by Joseph. And now his brothers are about to wait in line. We're in verse 42 now. Verse 1 of verse 40, or chapter 42, verse 1. This is when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale. In, so this is J Joseph's dad. If you haven't been with us, this is Joseph's dad. Learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Such a dad thing to say, isn't it? Why are you guys staring at each other? You just go get us food. Some brilliant guy in Egypt knew this was coming, I guess, and uh, built some complexes full of grain. So go to one of those complexes and get us some food. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just so good. Verse 3, it says, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. You see that 10? 10, the next few verses say that they wouldn't bring their little brother. Dad does not want little brother to come with. Go get food, but you're not bringing little brother. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. Let's talk about little brother. Little brother Benjamin. This is Joseph's little brother. Little brother Benjamin. It's not like he's in some pack and play, okay? At this point, Joseph has been a slave and a prisoner for 13 years. And then there was seven years of plenty. So let's just do some math right now. I was never good at it, but just bear with me. You have 13 years plus seven years, 20 years. Benjamin was 10 years old when Joseph was sold into slavery. This means Benjamin is 30 years old. Jacob, come on, man. You can't be that bad of a helicopter parent. The guy's 30 years old. Why are you still babying the baby? He's 30 years old. Because dad can't outrun 
what happened to Joseph 20 years ago. All dad can think of is holding that beautiful robe soaked in blood. And that memory still haunts him. He still blames himself for sending Joseph out into the wilderness. It's his fault. And he can't outrun that. And you can't take, you can't take little brother. Because I can't do that again. He's 30. And you know exactly what that's like. Something in your past is keeping you from doing something. Something in your past is keeping you from living boldly. Going faster. It happens in here in church. Come in here, worship starts, music is great. But you stand there and struggle to raise your hands because your hands just feel dirty. And the enemy reminds you of that thing. Oh, you're going to worship with those hands? With what, with what those hands did? You're going to raise them to God? Or that whisper in your head, you're broken. Remember that thing that happened to you? You're faking it. Sitting here in church, if only everybody knew. And it paralyzes you with fear, with guilt, with shame. And you're not going after life as much as you could because something is nipping at your heels and slowing you down. You can't outrun it. This is Jacob. The guy can't send his 30-year-old son because Joseph's death still haunts him from 20 years ago. And we know exactly how that works. Verse 6, says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So you just imagine the this, this scene here. There they are in, in that complex. They're exhausted and, and sweaty from traveling through the desert heat. They're standing in line. They're, they're, they're waiting to go into the building to the, of cubicles. And yet somehow God orchestrated, of course, they end up right in front of their brother. 20 years ago, they ate their lunch as Joseph sat in a pit. Now the tables have turned. It's now Joseph with all the food. And they're at his mercy, but they don't know what's in. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, well, from, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He hasn't seen them in 20 years. The brothers who abused him, the brothers who sold him, the reason he worked as a slave, the reason he lived in prison, it's these guys that have kept him from seeing his dad. Each of those 10 faces standing before him have haunted him, stirred that anger inside of him. How sweet would it have been to get revenge? It's been the greatest revenge story of all time. The brothers now become his slaves. But Joseph has an even better story in mind. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. They said, we, we your servants are 12 brothers. Look at this. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father. You see that? And one is no more. One is no more. The original wording for this in Hebrew is one no longer exists. There's one brother we have, but he no longer exists. And then that's when I ask, well, then why even mention him? 
if he's really no more, if he no longer exists, it's been 22 years, why are you bringing him up? Unless you can't outrun that memory of what you guys did. See, some of us are Jacob, we're blaming ourselves for something that happened in our past, we're living in fear and shame. And some of us are these brothers trying to pretend like that thing didn't really happen. I don't want to talk about that season of my life. I don't know how many times I run into people who say, I don't want to talk about that season of my life. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to pretend like everything's great. Maybe I can just fake it until I make it. But like these brothers, even though there's that something in your past that is, quote unquote, no more, no longer exists, somehow it's still there because you brought it up. It still pops up. It still haunts you. It still holds you captive. And so you go, imagine the scene, right? There they are laying on their faces, sucking marble, scared out of their wits before Joseph. And then there's Joseph. How sweet would it have been to get retribution here? Payback, enslave them and their families. These are the stories that are retold. But again, Joseph has something better in mind. But he has to see if they've changed. So he makes them bring back little brother. I'm going to skip over like, a little bit here, kind of like, just talk through this. They, they have him bring back little brother. No food until you bring back little brother, who you're talking about, this little brother back at home. So go get him and come back. A couple chapters unfold. Little brother comes back. Joseph puts his little brother in a situation where the brothers have to decide, have to choose between protecting him or freedom. And Joseph is testing them. You're going to protect little brother. Unlike what you did with me, you're going to protect him. And they do. They have changed. As we skip to chapter 45, skip over to 45, verse 1. This is when Joseph is going to say who he is. 45, I know we're skipping over a bit, but we're actually going to come back and, and re-go through this a, a couple times in these next two weeks. But chapter 45, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh had heard it. I mean, this is an incredibly intense emotional moment here. These faces that stand before Joseph hit the very source part of his soul. And my guess is you have some names and some faces that come to mind that elicit some emotions. A face or two that hurt you. A face or two that harmed you. Or a face or two that you've hurt. And you feel regret over it. And there you are once in a while, scrolling social media, your stomach sinks because you run across them on social media. Some of us don't have social media because of that. I just can't see those faces. Faces we don't want to run into in the grocery store. We'd rather forget about that. Ever happened to you? Ran into a face last week in the grocery store. Like, ah, they really hurt me. I don't want to see them. We all have those faces. Joseph is face to face with all 10 of those faces at once. This is high emotions. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, his, his father still alive. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his prayer. They're freaking out. Joseph is doing something incredible here. He's freeing, not just freeing himself, but freeing his brothers and freeing his dad. All three parties living with something in their past that haunts them, that keeps on holding them back. Joseph has the power, and he doesn't use that power to punish he doesn't use that power to prove he was right. Hey, my dream came true. He uses his power to free all three parties, himself, his dad, and his brothers. And this right here, I mean, make no mistake, this is incredible. This is a sign of amazing strength. 
Strength that not many in history have had. Incredible strength. I don't know if any of us have that. Strength that writes a far better story. And Joseph here is giving us some lessons, some insights into this text. What do you do when you have the past lurking at you? Because you have it. You might feel it when you walk into church. You felt it during worship. You might feel it when you open God's word. It still haunts you. Something was done to you or you did something. What do you do with that thing in your past? Number one, let's talk about this, pursuing forgiveness. First, pursue forgiveness. And maybe this seems like, oh, yeah, of course. But no, we, we got to talk about this because so many of us are just so bad at this. It's why our society is where it's at right now, because we just, we're not good at this. Joseph standing before his brothers, high emotional moment. He's maybe even dealing with some PTSD here with guys who are pounding on him, throwing him down into a pit, taunting him, and Joseph forgives them. But make no mistake, that was not the first time he forgave them. Joseph stands here with incredible strength because he's built that strength over time. He already forgave them before they even showed up. Had he not, he would have been the majority of people today. Many of us just stewing in bitterness, spiraling with and mental health, just angry. This right here, this isn't like a moment of forgiveness. This beautiful scene in scripture is the culmination of years of forgiveness. See, I imagine, I imagine Joseph waking up in Potiphar's house, right? 20-year-old kid, three years into his, his slavery. First thought that comes to him that morning is, I'm here because of my stupid brothers. Just cancel that debt. I'm not going to live with that. Dealing with those same feelings in prison, seven years and serving his sentence. I hate my brothers for what they did. Forgive them again. He would not let the past hold him back. And the truth is, some of us in here are really struggling. We have, it's hard to stay joyful. You get these bouts of negativity, dealing with anger. Something puts you on edge, or you kind of feel like you're in this funk. Something just kind of sets you off. You know what? You know exactly what I'm talking about. That is often a symptom of you holding on to something. Something in your past is wearing on you. And either you need to forgive or you need to seek forgiveness. And until that happens, the past will have your number and it will continue to infect you. It'll make you a hollow shell of the person you were meant to be. This is the majority of people. This is the majority of us. Living life, but angry with my parents, don't bring them up. Angry with the in-laws. Angry with the company that let me go. Angry with that ex. So many people exhausted from carrying shame and just running, tired of carrying it all, tired of faking it, really. Pursue forgiveness. And for some of us, pursuing forgiveness, it just looks like making apologies. Some of us had faces come to mind of people that we need to go make apologies to. You need to appropriately seek forgiveness. Last year, uh, last year, I, so I was running from something. It's like nothing terribly big. I had a fallout with a friend over a decade ago, and um, confession, I didn't handle it. I didn't handle it right. And every time I ran across their like posts or whatever, like I just had this tinge of guilt. And um, I don't know if you're guilty of this or just I'm a terrible person, but I would just explain it away. It's like, oh, well, it's mostly their fault. You know, if they just hadn't done that, you know, it's mostly their fault. Finally, I just got sick of it, and I messaged them. Here's what I did wrong. I was an idiot. I'm sorry. And that pursuit of forgiveness detached that bitter part of my past. 
Now when I, you know, I, I think of them or I run across their posts, like there's no tinge of guilt. I actually enjoy seeing what, what they're up to. See, for a lot of us, a new lease on life is on the other side of one of those conversations that you're running from. But instead, what the majority of people do is we'll just try to bury it. I'm going to try to forget about it. It no longer exists. Or we're just overly nice to that person. Are you ever guilty of that? I'm just going to be super nice to them. I'll make up for it. No, come on. Or we'll sit here and just kind of blame them. Well, you know, listen, I wasn't like totally right. But like if they just hadn't done that, you know, and then I feel like I'm blessed on the hook. No, no, come on. Just go make the apology. What are you waiting for? It's been long enough. It's been awkward enough. There was something you were wrong about. So just buck up, confess, apology. What are you waiting for? Who you want to be is on the other side of that. But for some of us, it's actually going to be a lot harder than this. You don't need to seek forgiveness because you really did nothing wrong. You need to give it, which is a lot harder. For some of us, pursuing forgiveness looks like canceling the debt. Canceling someone's debt to you. I'm going to be careful here because this idea alone can stir some anger. Usually when I get emails, tough emails, it's after we talk about forgiveness because this just can stir some anger. A lot of people in our church have been abused. A lot of people in our church have been cheated in big ways, have been cheated on. Life-altering things have been done to you. Things where, you know, if you were to get up here and you were to share what was done to you, a bunch of us would want to go bust down that person's door and make them pay. We'd be with you. And that thought sounds so sweet. But could it be that God has a greater story waiting to be written? What would it look like for you to start exercising that muscle of forgiveness, to stop punishing them in your mind all the time, to stop seeing them as like this object of like blame in your life? What would it look like to reject that label of victim and move forward and rise above that? There's a couple of pastors on staff. I was, I was hanging out this is past weekend. I was just reminded like, some of the pastors on staff have had some just awful things done to them. Life-altering sin done to them. I was talking with one, and he just said, man, I'll tell you, it's like a daily forgiveness for me. I will wake up in the morning, and it's almost a morning prayer. I just, I'm canceling that debt. God, I forgave them. I know this is like the hundredth time I've come to you to forgive them, but I, I don't know. I feel weak. I'm feeling these, these feelings of bitterness and anger, and so I'm just, I'm giving it to you. I don't know what to do with it. I'm just giving it to you. They don't owe me anything. Not only does that build strength, it frees you to embrace today and tomorrow in a healthier and stronger way. I, this is why I believe Joseph did this throughout his whole life. When he stands before his brothers, he's already forgave them a bunch of times. See, for some of us right here, it's debts plural. We've gotten really good at keeping this list of everybody's debts to you. This is a lot of people. List of everybody in your past. Trail of broken relationships, broken family relationships, coworkers, in-laws. You got this whole list, and you have the ledger on everyone, and you're the victim in every single situation. I would argue there's one common denominator a lot of times. My guess is you probably played a huge role in these broken relationships, so just like get rid of the ledger and go make apologies for your part. But either way, pursue forgiveness. As followers of Jesus, people who are forgiven by God, we are borderline obsessed with the power of forgiveness. Let me just say this, because there's a lot of us too. I hear this all the time. You know, well, Junior, I, listen, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever hear that? I've said that before. You know, they're Jacob, just blaming themselves, knowing that God is forgiving, but living in that shame of perpetual self-blaming. 
Think about it this way. To say, I, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. Who am I putting above God now? Me. Listen, I know God forgave me, but there's like this higher power that I need to appeal to myself. No, no, no. God's forgiveness is supreme. His forgiveness invites us to live in that forgiveness, and our feelings submit to that. Our shame dissipates the more we lean into the love and the forgiveness of God. Pursue forgiveness. It is a powerful, powerful, powerful act. Number two, what do you do when your past is haunting you? Look for God's hand. Look for God's hand. Joseph says something so brilliant. It's one of the most quoted verses in scripture, but he he looks at his brothers. This is after his dad dies and his brothers think, oh my goodness, dad's gone now. He's going to kill us. And and his brothers are freaking out. It's like right after dad's funeral, they come to Joseph and Joseph says one of the most popular sayings in all of scripture. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The power of this idea is often lost in, in the popularity of this phrase because, you know, we love this phrase. We post it. We frame it. Grandma sews it on doilies. We put it on our walls. Like, we just, we love this verse. But then we often miss the power of what, of what Joseph is doing right here. Joseph is intentionally looking for the hand of God in his story. And that is absolutely huge. See, much of, much of the suffering that Joseph went through, Joseph responded well to it, and it conditioned him for higher level leadership. So the fire that Joseph went through, God used it, didn't cause it, but he used it to mold Joseph for bigger things. Now, please don't misunderstand me, because often pastors, I think, will go way overboard and say things like, you know, well, everything happens for a reason. What happened to you? God orchestrated that. No, no, no. Don't ever tell anybody who's been molested that. Don't ever tell anybody who's been raped that. The reality is that sin has broken this world. Sin has created pain and chaos, but God can take tragedy, pain, and work with it to write an incredibly powerful story. Case in point, Joseph. Much of Joseph's life is a tragedy, and he can, spend, he can respond in one of two ways. Allow this pain to, to make him go into bitterness, resentment, anger, live out the rest of his life as some victim, which I wouldn't blame him for. I mean, look what happened to him. This is the response of most people, even most Christians. Or Joseph can trust that God can take a tragedy, pain, and write a powerful story and look for the hand of God and what God is doing with those broken pieces. See, the truth be told, there is, there's junk in your past. It lingers. But when you begin to intentionally look for God's hand in the full story, you begin to adopt a bigger perspective. Now, that's not just a source of shame. God's doing something here, and he's using it for bigger things. One of my really good childhood friends uh, was molested as a child. It was an awful situation. I was with him an hour before it happened, and then I was with him right after. It was just terrible. And I watched him struggle with that, just walk this messy road of, of forgiveness. The guy's an incredible guy. Today, he uses his story this journey to help others who are dealing with the same thing, to walk with them, to see others' shame lifted. Like he'd be the first to tell you God's using it powerfully and he's not running from it. He doesn't see himself as some victim. He just is inviting God's hand to do bigger things. I think of uh, multiple women in our church, but one, one comes to mind, uh, a woman in our church who had an abortion, lived years punishing herself, met Jesus, found forgiveness, 
she now works with women feeling like abortion is their only option. And now her story, which she was so ashamed about, now her story is saving countless others from living the same pain. God doing what God does. Using it for good. See, sin done to us or by us, it, it hurts. It can hold you back, can hold you down. Man, all the way to your grave. Never forget the hand of God. Be borderline obsessed with looking for it. Because it's God's hand that invites you into a greater story. See, the enemy wants to use your past against the future. This is what the enemy does. I'm going to take this, I'm going to make you bitter. I'm going to take this, I'm going to bring you shame. I'm going to hold you back with this. I'm going to keep you from worship. I'm going to keep you from freedom. I'm going to keep you from true joy. I'm going to keep you from going after life. The enemy wants to use your past against your future, but God wants to use your past for others' future. This is what he does. He wants to write a greater story. I want to use this. I know you're ashamed about it, but I want to use this to help others. I want to use that which you're running from to keep it from happening to others. This is redemption. It's, to me, it's this beautiful mystery, really. That which we run from, God wants to run to it and use it because it's one of his favorite stories to write. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.